0: Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Rupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So, this week I'm going to take a break from our series on tyranny because a couple other things came up that I wanted to address before too much time passed by. So, I'm going to look at some things that happened in a recent public school board meeting I'm going to look at a statement that someone made at the most recent meeting, which I was able to attend, but before we dive into that, I want to consider our passage of the day. So, today's passage is Psalm 11. Let me read this in the English Standard Version, starting in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string, to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Okay, so in that psalm, it's a psalm of King David. And before he becomes king, and so the context is that he has fled from King Saul, uh, and Saul is pursuing him. So sending out soldiers to find David. He's being pursued by his enemies. Now at the beginning, when David says, how can you say to my soul, and then he begins to quote, flee like a bird to your mountain, He continues on, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So essentially, uh, whoever he's referring to, speaking these words, whether it's maybe some friends nearby uh, that are giving him false or very bad advice, maybe like Job's friends, or maybe he's just thinking to himself, and there's this lingering doubt inside that is telling him, flee, flee flee to the like a bird to your mountain the wicked are too strong right they have fitted their arrow to the string if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do so it seems whether he's talking to potential friends or whether he is just speaking about his own doubts the point that he's bringing up is that these doubts this bad advice is suggesting that the enemy is too strong they are too many They are targeting the upright in heart. They're coming for God's people. And there's nothing that the righteous can do. It it really is pointless to resist because the foundations are destroyed. Now, some commentators are in a slight disagreement on exactly what is being said with regard to the phrase, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Some argue that it could be translated for the foundations will be destroyed. What? Has the righteous done? The idea being that the work of a righteous person means nothing, and whatever has been done is all for nothing and will be destroyed. The damage is too extensive, it can't be repaired. So, to David, get out while you can and don't expect to win. But there's also another possible uh, application to that phrase if the foundations are destroyed, what Can the righteous do? And that could possibly be uh, a taunt to the righteous um, or a recognition that if the foundations are destroyed, then there is nothing that the righteous will be able to do. The foundations really matter. Um, Without a strong foundation, the righteous will fall. And I think that both are actually true. Um, The enemy. Of the righteous. The enemies, in this case, of King David, or not yet King David, the anointed King David. Um, Either way, it's a taunt, it's also a recognition of the truth that if the foundations are destroyed, then there really is not much else that can be done. And of course, the enemy says, well, it doesn't really matter the work that you have done it's all going to be destroyed, that we're going to defeat you. That's what the wicked would say. But the psalm doesn't end there because David turns to the Lord. So even though there might not be any foundations left on earth, or the enemy is threatening to destroy the foundations, uh, the fact is that God is in his temple. So that's the foundation that really matters. As soon as, as David even mentions, if the foundations are destroyed, his mind immediately moves on to God who is in his holy temple. So that's the only foundation that matters. It's built upon the rock of the Lord. If it's built upon God and his word, then it will stand the test of time. It will survive, and the wicked will not be able to overcome it. And David moves on to talk about how the Lord does test the righteous. He sees everything. Nothing escapes his notice. And the wicked, those who love violence, will receive God's wrath. And so David is being tested here and he's facing a trial. How will he respond? Will he respond in despair and flee to the mountains like a bird because the wicked are so strong? Or is he going to trust in the Lord and let the Lord deal with the wicked in time, knowing that God will judge justly because the Lord is righteous and loves the righteous and and the psalm ends with a wonderful promise that those who are upright will look upon the Lord and the Lord's face will shine upon them, similar to the priestly blessing that was given in uh, in the book of Leviticus. So, application uh, really for Christians today, if we begin to see the foundations of our society crumbling, um, the foundations of civilization eroding, well. We shouldn't despair. The enemy wants us to flee, and the enemy wants us to believe that the foundations are destroyed and that there's nothing left. But the thing is, is that if the foundations are in the Lord, if they're strong, then they will endure. Things that are on a weak foundation, like shifting sand, yes, they will fall. So no matter what happens, the fact remains is that the Lord is still in his holy temple. The Holy Spirit is still dwelling inside of us, and Christ is still on his throne, and he will bring justice. And our job is to be faithful. Maybe that means building new foundations um, from the rubble of the ones that were weak or ungodly foundations, or just to trust that the things that are firm and are firmly established, they will endure, and not to worry about that. So that is our passage of the day. And now, Uh, Related to this concept of foundations, I want to speak about the recent public school board meeting that I attended on January 10th. Now, this school board meeting is for the Central Bucks School District um, in which I live. So I had spoken first back in November and pointed out that there was no neutrality. And I had responded to uh, one of the uh, liberal board members who said there is no such thing as neutrality. Because the topic that's being brought up in these most recent school board meetings is Policy 321, which is a policy, uh, if you haven't listened into the previous uh, podcast on the state of the schools here in this district, that policy tries to make everything neutral. So there's no rainbow flag and no BLM flag and no Antifa flags, um, Trump flags, no flags at all except for the American flag and the Pennsylvania state flag, I believe, are allowed in the school or displayed in the school. And teachers have to remain neutral in the subject matter that they're covering in class. They can't promote their own political, religious, uh, philosophical views on things. Now, it's a fine policy as far as it goes, but I actually agreed with with the liberal board member who said there's no such thing as neutrality. Everyone brings a worldview perspective Uh, into the classroom. And uh, there are foundations. Essentially, she's pointing out that there's always a foundation for science, for knowledge, for mathematics. And that is why even the concept of 2 plus 2 equals 4 is challenged by a very radical postmodern kind of theory, very critical theory. So anyways, I had made that statement of there being no neutrality in November. And then in December. A woman spoke, I did not speak, I did not go to that meeting, and she referred to what I had said in November, she didn't mention my name, but she pointed out that our founding fathers were deists, they were not Christian, and that our country was secular and built upon secularism. So I felt compelled to come to the meeting in January and speak about that issue. And so I didn't so much talk about Policy 321 as I talked about the history of our nation. So she had specifically mentioned uh, Washington, Jefferson, and Madison as all being deists. And then she referenced documents such as the Treaty of Tripoli, which was a treaty between us and the Barbary Pirates in the 1790s and early 1800s. And then uh, James Madison's Remonstrance basically a document he wrote about religious liberty. Uh, She used all of that to demonstrate secularism as the foundation of our nation. But in my statement, I simply pointed out that the Treaty of Tripoli, and by the way, there were multiple treaties of Tripoli, um, the very first one does contain a statement that explicitly says uh, that the federal government is not founded upon Christianity in any sense which is a very strange statement, and you kind of wonder who put that in there, and if it was put in there to kind of appease the Muslims, uh, to make it very clear that there doesn't need to be conflict between us and them. But regardless, shortly after that treaty was signed, it was broken by the Barbary pirates, and so we had to make another treaty. And about nine years later, in 1805, the Second Treaty of Tripoli, was made, and there's a another one after that. I don't think it's called the Treaty of Tripoli, but it's the same verbiage as the first treaty, except they explicitly remove the statement saying that our country is not founded upon Christianity, so that is now gone in the eighteen o five Treaty of Tripoli, probably by the request of the Senate, and maybe because of some of the pushback that had happened after the first Treaty of Tripoli was published so there's there's that minor point. And then in the Remonstrance, if you read that, and I encourage you to read James Madison's Remonstrance concerning uh, religious liberty, um, he actually talks about liberty of conscience and that people are to give God what is owed to him. And everyone has their right and their responsibility to do that. So you can't mandate that one person worships a certain way or believes a certain thing about God. But he's Clearly referring to the Christian God, not Buddhism or the millions of Hindu gods or uh, the Muslim God or anything like that. Um, so there's that. And then I mentioned George Washington. Interestingly, uh, I would encourage you to read an address that George Washington gave to the Delaware Native Americans. He says this. He says, You do well to wish to learn our arts and ways of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people than you are. Congress will do everything they can to assist you in this wise intention. So that's a pretty bold statement where George Washington is basically telling the Delaware Indians, you need to do this. This is actually going to be better for you if you follow after the religion of Jesus Christ. And of course, he brings Congress into it that Congress is going to help. Um, so maybe maybe in that case, they shouldn't be helping. So whenever the government gets involved in things like this, it doesn't usually go very well. But either way, we see that it was not a secular statement. And then Thomas Jefferson is, is often considered to be the preeminent atheist or deist, but even he d- was not consistent in that, um, in his proclamation for thanksgiving and prayer. And this was, I believe, when he was governor of Virginia, in 1779, he praised God for having quote, diffused the glorious light of the gospel, whereby through the merits of our gracious Redeemer we may become heirs of his eternal glory. End quote. And then at the end of that statement, uh, that address, he calls upon God to quote, spread the light of Christian knowledge through the remotest corners of the earth. End quote. So this is not a, a deist perspective. Because um, deism believes that God created the universe and then stopped getting involved. He just stepped back and is kind of hands-off. So he doesn't really get involved in human affairs, and praying to him doesn't really do anything. There's no real reason to pray to the God of deism. He's not going to help you. There are no miracles, anything like that, which is not what our founding fathers um, believed. Even Benjamin Franklin himself um, called for prayer. He wouldn't do that if he really did believe that God does not answer prayer and does not involve himself in human affairs. And then the last thing I stated was about our state capitol here in Pennsylvania, which I had just recently visited uh, on a field trip for my uh, daughter's school. And I found three Bible passages prominently displayed on the walls in both the Senate and the House. So in the House of Representatives... On the wall, it says, quote, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, End quote. Now, that's John 8, 32. And in all these references, the passages don't contain the citation. So you just see the, the words from the Bible. You don't actually see the book and verse of the passage. So maybe that's why people aren't really paying attention, but it's clear, it's clear as day. Anyways, in the Senate, so there's a beautiful mural uh, on the wall of the Senate, but on the, at the bottom of the mural, it says this. It says, quote, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, end quote. And that, again, is a direct citation of Revelation twenty two two. And then finally, uh, on the Senate wall, uh, where everyone can see are the words, quote, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, end quote. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. Again, there are no citations on the walls, but the words are clearly from scripture. So you have three Bible passages publicly on display paid for by taxpayer dollars in the House of Representatives and the and the Senate at our at our state capitol. And so our government here in Pennsylvania literally sits under the word of God and generally rebels against it. It's quite uh, it's quite striking, quite ironic. So that is what I said in January, but after I spoke I had to leave and go to an elder meeting so i wasn't able to stay and listen to the rest of the comments and my wife told me afterward about a comment that was made not in reference to anything i said but a man spoke near the end and she said it was very striking it was clearly something was you know strange about it as far as how spiritual it was and i got a chance to listen to it myself and it is quite striking And I think when you hear it, you'll begin to realize that this is a very spiritual battle that our culture is in right now. Yeah, anyways, I'm just going to play it and then I'll make some comments on it afterward.
1: Conservatives might succeed in using culture wars wedge issues to rally their base and win elections, but they always lose the culture wars. Why? The answer's stunning. Because they've already lost. That's right. By the time conservative culture warriors, like many of you here today, pick up an issue, it's already a lost cause. You're fighting for a world that is gone. You're fighting for a world that is already lost. You are fighting, in fact, because you know that what you are accustomed to, in this case, a society that commits to the project of failing to provide an inclusive environment for LGBTQ people, is already yesterday's news. And that's the message I want to share with everyone here today. You cannot turn back the clock. Don't take me wrong, there's a great deal you can do. You can methodically weaken the academic and mental health outcomes for your students. You can conspire to increase suicide rates of an already very vulnerable population. You can even conspire, as you apparently wish to, to dismantle the faith Americans hold in public education and turn school board meetings into an embarrassing circus. But you just cannot turn back the clock. You've already lost. Today, young people of all gender and sexual identities grow up knowing that they can legally marry. Today, young people can flip on any streaming device of their choice and find affirming, joy-centered television featuring gay characters. Today, young people can hop on Instagram and TikTok and find whatever proudly queer content they like. Sure, banned books from the library, but have you ever met the internet? LGBTQ role models abound. Heck, the most popular self-help podcast for American moms is hosted by a lesbian couple. Once in high school, I remember a teacher saying that gay people were rampant in ancient Rome. He didn't mean that in a positive sense, but I do. Wonderful, successful gay people are rampant today in government, in music, in sports, in Hollywood, in law, in business, in education, in literally every sector you can imagine. Rainbow flags might not be in your classrooms after tonight, but they are just about everywhere else. And no business or institution of higher education wants to recruit people who melt into pretty little snowflake puddles when they see a rainbow flag. They want people who can cooperate and succeed in affirming diverse environments. To those here prepared to support policy 321, even if you win tonight, you've already lost the war. The world moved on from your bigoted fear of gay kids many years ago. This tonight is the last gasp of a sad lost cause. I'm almost done. To the young people here today, no doubt it'll be sad to go to a school where the administration has conspired to make you feel unwanted, but you are wanted. And a rainbow flag isn't the only way to know whether a teacher is kind and inclusive or bigoted and hateful. It's pretty easy to sniff that kind of thing out. We're all pros at that. Stick together, celebrate one another, let this battle strengthen you. Build affirming communities for yourself with good friends and wise mentors and rest in knowing that you've already won. A better world awaits and so does another school board election. So,
0: just uh, think for a second about some of the things that that he said. Uh, Quite frankly, if I were trying to figure out, if I was playing devil's advocate and wanted to say what I think the devil would say, I would probably say those words. What he just said. Not saying that he himself is the devil, but in a sense, kind of like when Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. You're speaking about the things of man, not the things of God. I think that what that man just said, the ideas, the words behind it, are of Satan. And let's just kind of break that down and show that, show why that is the case. Well, first of all, he argues what you're fighting for is gone. There are no foundations anymore. You can do nothing. You can't turn back the clock. You've already lost. And the... LGBT community is everywhere. They're, they're all over the place. They're in every um, area of life, right? And that they need to build affirming communities, kind of like a church, right? And that they're very optimistic. He says, you've already won the war. You've already won. The battle's already over. Now think about how that is a complete 180 or opposite false gospel, to what the true gospel is. So as Christians, we argue Christ won on the cross. He defeated the devil and threw down the principalities and powers and all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him and he sits and reigns at the right hand of the Father. So we believe that Jesus already won the war and we are building a church community where we strengthen one another we stick together, and these difficulties that we face strengthen us, kind of like a refining furnace, a refining fire and Our job is to go out into the community to be involved in every area of life and to make disciples of all nations and What this man just said is a false gospel that advocates for a false church with a false god um it is. Simply put, of the devil. It is exactly what the devil would say. There are no foundations. What can the righteous do? You could do nothing. And you have lost and you will lose, no matter what happens. And what Jesus did, that doesn't matter. That can't change anything. So, when we think about the words that this man spoke publicly to a school board here in Bucks County we have to recognize that this is a spiritual battle. It's a battle of the minds and of the words and of the heart. And the enemy is offering a false gospel and trying to create a false church. The false gospel is the good news of sexual liberation, that you can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want. Um, You can live however you want. It's being set free from the bondage of God's laws. So Christ sets us free from the bondage of sin. But the devil wants us to be free from the bondage of God's laws. And that's no different than what was presented to Adam and Eve in the garden. If you eat of the fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You should be free of God's rules. That's what the devil wants. That's what Satan wants us to do, to try to be free from the bondage of God's laws, to look at them as... Burdensome and tyrannical and oppressive. And so there's a new church being built, an affirming community that's tight knit, that are working together to accomplish a common goal. The enemy is very optimistic, by the way, very kingdom focused. They're going to place disciples in every location, every sphere of authority. He says that they've already won and that they already have the children. They got the children via the internet, social media, Instagram, all that stuff, via entertainment and media. Music and arts, and that they're going to dominate the world. And that is a proclamation of the kingdom of darkness. And the fact is is that us Christians, we have dropped the ball on this. So these individuals, this man, for example, is proclaiming the exact opposite gospel and proclaiming an exact opposite kingdom of the kingdom and gospel of Christ. And we have given over the public square. To to these individuals. Satan is in the public square. He's speaking right now, and we are not there. So what's contributed to this is a form of escapism. And while I respect all of the three main forms of eschatology: pre-millennialism, ah-millennialism, and post-millennialism, there is a type of escapism that comes with a rapture form of Eschatology, the pre millennial rapture dispensational view of eschatology. And I have many friends that hold to that view, and they don't all subscribe to the escapist mindset. But I do think that it is a temptation, and it's one of the weaknesses of that view. The escapist view of we're just going to hunker down, and God is going to basically whisk us out of here. Just wait, wait it out, go into the bunker. And don't worry about the world because it's all going to burn. It's all going to the devil anyways. Well, I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus actually came to save the world and that he's doing it and he's going to do it and he's in the process of doing it. And now there's a billion Christians in the world when it started out with only just a handful, maybe about a dozen, uh, when Jesus first ascended into heaven. And I understand that not all hold to that kind of an escapist mindset because They do believe, you know, time is of the essence. The rapture is coming. Jesus is coming fast. So save as many as you can by proclaiming the gospel and evangelizing. And that's good. That is good. But I think it needs to go beyond that. It's not just getting them fire insurance. It's not just saving as many as we can. It's also proclaiming the kingdom, which already is here and is established and is growing, but it's not yet fully consummated and fully completed, right? So we need to engage because the enemy believes also that his kingdom has already won and is already here and is already growing. But the fact is is that the cross of Christ says that that's not true. It's the gates of hell that won't prevail against the church. The church is on the offense. Gates are a defensive structure. The church is not on the defense. The church is and needs to be on the offense. We need to be optimistic that the gospel is the power unto salvation. And maybe um, we are going to go through a period of darkness, um, even worsening darkness here in the United States, but that is not the case throughout the whole world right now. And maybe in time there'll be another great awakening where great repentance and revival will take place, just like it has in the past in previous nations and previous empires. You know, it's interesting that the person brought up that there used to be many gay people in the Roman Empire and there used to be many pedophiles as well. But that changed. Why did it change? Because of the gospel. Because Christianity spread and essentially upended everything. So, um, yes, there's going to be a struggle, but we will advance. And the greater the advance, by the way, the harder the enemy fights. And maybe that's why the enemy is fighting so hard. Remember, when the Allies invaded Uh, Normandy. And essentially the war was over at that time, although there was much more fighting to be done. But the enemy fought much harder the closer we got to Germany. So even though the enemy is losing and the enemy is fighting very, very hard, we need to remain optimistic and trust in the power of the gospel and the spread of Christ's kingdom. He did not lie to us when he sent us out to make disciples of all nations. So I just found it very interesting what that man said, because what he said is honestly, what I think Satan would say in the public square. He wants the kids. He says he has the kids, and our job as Christians and Christian parents is to not let him have the kids. Um, So, anyways, that is what I wanted to share with you today. I pray that you think about these things, consider these things, and maybe you might be led to get involved in the public square where the gospel needs to be in order to fight the enemy who is there. Satan is there, and he is active, and he does not want us to be there. So we should really think about that as we seek to spread the gospel uh, in this world. Anyways, with that, I think uh, we'll call it a day. And next time, we'll probably go back into the series on tyranny. And so if you have any comments, questions, or other topics you would like me to address, please email me at the GBGpodcast at gmail.com or go on Twitter, Instagram facebook you can look me up at governed by god or the gbg podcast and send a message to me there please share this show with a friend i want to get this out to more and more people so that we can be encouraged to engage in this spiritual warfare that we are engaged in whether we like it or not so with that thank you for tuning in and until next time take care and god bless